Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Friday, August 27th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Guys, um, I don't know where uh, in the annals of presidential uh, speech making and press appearancing we should place Joe Biden's performances last night uh, after or yesterday afternoon uh, in an effort to um, uh, connect to the American people on the horror uh, of the uh, suicide bombing uh, outside the Kabul airport that took 13 American servicemen and has left uh, many others injured, including many, many, many Afghans. Um, but I, I don't remember a worse performance. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, uh, Trump saying there are good people on both sides in Charlottesville, uh, but I, I don't remember a performance that was intended to salve the American emotions and uh, the country's uh, rage and upset and and show that we were uh, in the uh, steady hands of a competent leader. Um, I don't remember anything that has failed quite so spectacularly as that. Uh, what What do you guys, what's your... What's your take? That, essentially that, um, there's such a profound disconnect. I mean, I struggle sometimes to wonder just exactly whether I have my finger on the pulse of the nation at times. Um, but there's such, such a lack of any comprehension for understanding of or interest in how the American public responds to moments like these in the American press corps and in the people who are surrounding Joe Biden, they have convinced themselves of that Joe Biden's core competency is his empathy, that he's such a little squish that he can just, you know, reach right into your soul and feel your pain and channel it back to you. And, you know, you can achieve some kind of catharsis in that way. And he is good at that when the moment calls for sadness. This was not a moment that called for sadness. Americans do not want to feel sad when they've been attacked, they want to be mad. And Joe Biden can't be mad. He promised yesterday, nonsensically, that he would avenge the deaths of these Americans, that that, that he would do whatever possible, with the exception of a big military operation. We will go to to hell and back for you, unless it requires a big footprint. Um, And obviously, this is not going to happen. The United States can't can't affect this kind of an operation during retrograde. And it can't do this from the air using satellites without actionable intelligence on the ground. It's a lie. We will not avenge these deaths. We will absorb them. And so in that sense, I guess you really should be sad because it's this declinist project is really punctuated by that event. Well, the, the preposterous thing here is that when he's this is this is the problem with with what with our getting out of Afghanistan, you see, is that um, when we get hit, um, we have sort of no nothing to stand on and nowhere to go from it. So when when Biden says we will not be deterred by terrorism, 
that's kind of hard to believe while we're in the midst of handing Afghanistan over to terrorists. Well, and I think uh, I think it also showed. I, I I agree with John's assessment of the speech. I also think, though, that it showed finally. Uh, uh, for those of us who've always been suspicious of this marketing ploy, that Noah, you're absolutely correct to say that this idea that that Joe Biden's real uh, political strength is his emotional intelligence and his empathy, this was it for me. I mean, I've I try I've tried to give him the benefit of the doubt on a few of these occasions, but and this will sound harsh. It is not intended to sound harsh, but when he trotted out the death of his son Bo again at this moment, it was all wrong. Not to not to at all question his his deep grief over the death of his child that is one of the that is perhaps the most devastating thing that can happen to a parent but he keeps bringing it out to score political empathy points and it it was it, it i actually felt anger yesterday listening to him do it because you're right Noah people are upset they're, they want to know how we're going to respond because an attack on our servicemen and servicewomen is an attack. And he didn't respond to this as if the United States military, which was our representative of our nation over there, was attacked. He talked about it like it really brought up some personal issues for him. That's not appropriate at this moment. Yeah, it was a speech designed to communicate resolve, but it, the tone was more in sorrow, which isn't resolve. That's the opposite of resolve. It's resignation, which is what he feels. I mean, he's communicating his absolute, complete, he's so at sea, he is so underwater. This has become such an unmanageable crisis for him that he was communicating his own abject com- uh, lack of any uh, control over, over circumstances, which is the opposite of the objective I think he was trying to achieve. And the speech was made worse by the context, meaning that what, has, what have we seen Biden doing these weeks? He's sort of been hiding from the American people at every turn um, and showing up dramatically late to whatever speech or press conference he has to give. Um, and then he comes out mumbling, um, looking not addressing the subject, not addressing the subject, looking stunned and weak. So taken in its totality, it was just it was such an immediate failure. Um, you sort of knew that it wasn't going he wasn't going to rise to the occasion the second he opened his mouth. You know, the public wants presidents to rise to the occasion. They kind of grade presidents on a curve at moments of national crisis. That's why there's the rallying around the flag effect. Like, it's not that hard to get the public on your side. Uh, They want to hear that you have a plan. They want to hear, they want to be moved by what it is that you say, speaking as a former presidential speechwriter, although one who never... um, dealt with a moment of crisis in my uh, brief tenure at the white house. Um, you know, it's a gimme it's, this is not, this is not the hard stuff in terms of doing exactly what, what Noah is saying, both, uh, demonstrating resolve, showing uh, concern and care, uh, speaking to the emotional gravity of the moment, and then moving on to the, what we are going to do in response to the terrible thing that has happened. So if you want to use tragedies, Reagan's speech after the explosion of the challenger um, said, we are going back to space and we are staying in space. Um, And then, you know, uh, the really odd, the really peculiar thing about Biden's remarks was the, uh, was the word for word echo of what, 
George W. Bush said after 9-11. He said, we will attack at a time and a place of our own choosing. That is literally the phrase that Biden used yesterday for a policy, the purpose of which was to put a, uh, you know, was to put a button or put a cap on on the 20 years that began on 9-11, I mean, that was his explicit purpose in pulling out of it. He said he wanted to do it on 9-11-2021 to make some, you know, to bring the symbolic close to this era. And now he is forced to use this rhetoric, which effectively, and I don't think people have quite assimilated this, um, he has sort of committed us to fighting a terror war in Afghanistan. We Even have to go into Afghanistan, a lie or not. I think it's a lie, too, but let's just take him at his word. We're going to hunt you down. We will not forget. We will not forgive. We will hunt you down. And I have directed the military to tell me to tell me whatever it is that they need. Didn't quite define what the mission was that he was asking the military to tell him whatever they needed. But what if the military comes back and says, we need 10,000, you know, we need 10,000 troops to... Uh, you know, soldier, sailor, airmen, and marines to help us secure the 1,500 Americans, if that number is correct, which I doubt, the 1,500 Americans who are left, not to mention the Afghan SIVs and all that, who are who who are sort of our our moral uh, responsibility. What does he say then? Well, there's so, say, I was just going to say that, that to that point, he actually, the speech is just, besides being a kind of interesting and, and uh, cosmic bookend to his own tendency to plagiarize other people's words at the end of his career, as he did at the beginning, it everything he said in those moments of, of borrowed resolve was contradicted immediately by his response to the questions that the press asked him. So, for example, he kept saying, you know, oh, well, we, we I don't know that we trust the Taliban, but we they have their own interests and we understand those interests and we'll be doing this, that and the other. Never addressing the key point, which is that if you even if you don't trust them, if you're if you're trying to negotiate with an organization that can't itself, even if you believe they didn't have anything to do with this attack, they can't prevent terrorist attacks on our interests on their own soil, that suggests that perhaps their interests are not the thing that we should be focusing on right now. The immediate safety of the evacuees and our soldiers are what we should be focusing on. He totally elided that by talking about how, oh, they have their interests. Why are we giving names of Americans and Afghan SIV holders to these people if they can't even prevent terrorist attacks? They're... It's It's hard to get your hands around what they're thinking at this point. The line out of the administration yesterday has been now the, the the mission isn't over on August 31. Now every tool we have to execute that mission will be over. But the mission itself will persist even if we're not seeing to it. The rationality behind that, the rationale for that is ponderous except only to set this administration up for inevitable failure when those goals are not met. Um second you know, if I watched the Pentagon briefing yesterday. If you didn't watch it, you probably should have. Uh, CENTCOM Commander General uh, Kenny McKenzie um, slavishly, obsequiously lapping at the feet of the Taliban, um, talking about how uh, competent they were. You know, some are, some, most of them are, though, and how good they are at the security they're providing us and what have you. We have no reason to believe that that's true at all. The notion here that these guys just kind of got through is cordon. Taliban operates cordon around the airport. Um, and they led through people very selectively. Now, the notion here that this probably happened by ignorance as opposed to malice makes a little bit more sense. But the mission as defined by this administration is this is the best scenario you could have hoped for. It, every other scenario was worse. 
what if we had 10,000 troops in this country? What if we renegotiated the withdrawal date or didn't renegotiate the withdrawal date? What if we had to retake Bagram? All of it would involve combat with Taliban, right? And you don't want that because it would produce American casualties. Well, guess what? 13 dead Americans, more dead Americans than in any day in a decade. The last comparable amount of dead Americans that we experienced was an attack on a helicopter. So where everybody was standing was in the same place. The notion here that we would have experienced almost a, a very similar, if not the same amount of death to execute a far more competent mission now makes a little bit more sense to the American public. I don't know what this administration's endgame is. I don't think they have an endgame. They're trying to win news cycles at the expense of the issue. Well, I think they also think or they're they're operating on the on the presumption. I don't mean that I think that they're cynically sitting around talking this way. Uh, because I think they must talk in euphemisms because nobody would talk this way in the middle of a crisis like this. But they think if they can just uh, keep going, uh, the story will fade. And as I think we've been saying, you, you said when I was out earlier in the week and the, we talked about yesterday, the story is not going to fade. Uh, it doesn't end uh, on on the 31st of August. There will still be hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans who have not uh, been brought out of the country. And then we haven't even begun to talk about uh, the the Afghans um, who are who are still there, who are whose lives whose lives are directly at at risk, particularly since we gave them a handy dandy list of uh, who they were and where they live uh, and all that and and. So I think that there is a there is a kind of internal presumption that news cycles come and news cycles go, and that will the news cycle will change, and they will they'll take their licks, and it'll be really hard. And in the long run, like everything else, everything fades. Um, there is no reason to think that this will fade. Uh, you know, tragically, sadly, horribly, it's not going to fade. And and I, the. Once we get all of our guys out, right, uh, and all of our uh, fellow Americans out, if we do that, um, do people really think that we're not going to be exposed in real time to the Taliban takeover of the country and its uh, need, I would say, its actual need as a as a political movement to uh, take account of and punish the Afghans who fought directly against them for 20 years. Like well, that's yeah, one we, of the things you do when you're, when you, when you fight a civil war and then you take over is you gotta, you gotta make sure that the people uh, whose, whose direct purpose it was to prevent you from doing what you just did, that they are held to account. Well, we have, happened. we have some, some reports uh, that that's already happening. It's been happening since, since they got to Kabul. I will say the other, the other thing that I think the, the Biden administration has a tell. It, it, it happens during COVID debates. It's happened during some, some inflation uh, debates uh, that have come up. It's when they say, don't politicize this. This is too serious a thing to politicize. And this was what they did yesterday. I think it was Jen Psaki during her briefing. So, you know, we, we can't politicize this. They are the ones who politicized this. Biden made a political decision, not a strategic one, because all of the people who know about strategic decision making advised him to do something different than what he chose to do. He had a political motivation. That's fine. He's an elected official. He's a politician. This is what politicians do. But to now, after this debacle, uh, this strategic mis huge strategic misstep, which cost Americans and many Afghans their lives, has blown up in his face, literally, the response isn't to say, how dare you criticize this? You're politicizing an important, serious issue. 
But that's their tell. They do it every time they reach a crisis moment on an issue that they have not handled strategically well. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> there, yeah. there, Jen Psaki yesterday was doing all this, you know, we were talking about this yesterday, talking about how every American who wants to get out will get out. And those who don't want to get out might stay there, suggesting that everybody who's there after August 31st did so of their own volition. You know, that's that's a really callous and, and obnoxious talking point that's going to be proven pers- wrong to great effect. The, you know, 1201 midnight, August 31, we're going to be inundated with the people who are already screaming that they can't run this Taliban man's gauntlet. It's going to be proven a lie. What long-term strategic thinking are there? What's the value in winning this news cycle with that message if it's just going to become so much worse for you in precisely four days? I don't understand at all what they're thinking. Well, so something else they've started to say um, is we're going to get out as many as we can. Um, which is a whole lot different from everyone. Uh, and by the way, we've given the Taliban the names of the Ameri- of Americans who were there too, not just of uh, Afghans. Um, so I, I wanna, I wanna, nothing is going away about this story. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about, you know, we've been doing these Saigon parallels and um, – People forget, I, I, again, I've mentioned this before, you know, we went to, you know, we, we, we basically threatened war in Africa in 1904 because there was a single American uh, taken hostage by a warlord uh, in North Africa, uh, Ian Petakaris, um, you know, which became a, a major issue in the, in, the, in the presidential campaign of 1904. We, uh, we had... Uh, you know, obviously the Iranian hostage crisis and, and other things. Uh, and here's the parallel. The parallel is that for 15 years, hundreds of thousands of Americans, if not more, uh, believed with no evidence that we had left 40, 50, 60 POWs and MIAs behind uh, in in. Indochina uh, when we when we left uh, after the fall of Saigon in uh, 1975, and this was no small American issue, uh, it, and and it happened. It was a populist, bubbling, uh, grassroots issue in the United States at a time when that was not easy to summon and create a grassroots movement. Um, the entire political career of Ross Perot was based in part on his embrace of the POW MIA missing guys in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. Uh, there was never any evidence that any such number of people existed, and their number, even according to them, was minuscule compared to what we might be seeing now. This idea, again, that the news cycle is going to make this fade, um, we don't leave Americans behind. We, are now have, we now have an administration embracing the prospect that we are going to leave Americans behind. The political consequences of this we know from American history can be really, really profound. It's hard to know what they'll be, how they'll express themselves, and what the fallout will be. But it is 
if you are Biden's friend, Biden's advisor, Biden, you would say move heaven and earth not to be in this position, not just because it is a moral stain on you that you would allow such a thing to happen or that you would be complicit in it, but because the whirlwind is going to come for you if you do that. But there, but it's I, I like this point that you make about the, how the POW MIA issue became start was a bottom up thing, a populist thing. There's a sense in which when I listen to the Biden administration and its supporters in the media, and all these you know the Jake Sullivans, the Tony Blinkens talk about this issue, I keep coming back to that split that that started to occur in the in the late 20th century and his his. Uh, blossom now of this idea that the technocratic elite have that we're all just global citizens, right? Being an American is really less important. Like you, you can go work for an NGO in Kabul and, you know, you're a global citizen. And But the flip side of that is what we're seeing now. That attitude carries with it a, a an unwillingness to use the power of, the, of American uh, America's military to extract you when you're at risk. It's sort of like, well, that's the risk you took. You decided to go do that. There, there's a weird kind of both a hyper individualism and this global citizen way of talking about people that that absolves them of responsibility or they're attempting to absolve themselves of any responsibility for these Americans. It doesn't matter why they're in Kabul. They're there. They're in danger. We need to help them. It's very simple. And I think most Americans look at that situation and go, what are you talking about? Why are you talking about your dead son? What about these people? These are our people. Uh, I just want to briefly talk about uh, the Hunter Biden analogy. Um, uh, Biden brought up Hunter, uh, excuse me, not Hunter, I'm sorry, Bo Biden. Uh, he brought up Bo Biden to say, my son did a tour in Iraq and he was he was in Kosovo before that as a lawyer. Uh, and then he came back uh, and he got brain cancer and he died. And that death, it, you know, it, it, it punches a hole in your heart and there's a hole and it's terrible, but you get through it. Um, there is a difference between being afflicted with cancer and being killed by a terrorist. Uh, there is a difference between being a 46-year-old man who serves his country honorably, comes back, and in an entirely unrelated way ends up uh, sick from a deadly uh, you know, disease and, and, and dying from it. Um, using... Bo's military service to kind of make some point about how he understands how families of of these uh, American officers feel because he also had a son die. Uh, these are not the same thing, morally, practically, in any way, shape, or form. Um, everybody has had a relative die on them uh, in a tragic and horrible way. And it's heartbreaking and all of that. That is not what happened here. What happened here was that yeah. 13 Americans were blown up by a suicide bomber as a result of a policy decision made by the president of the United States. He is not, he did not set the bomb and he did not blow them up and he does not have any culpability for their deaths in that sense. But they would be alive had this policy not been enacted. And they're getting a knock on the door. That's a very different thing than a cancer diagnosis. I agree. But I, I thought that he tried to tie Bo's service to his cancer. Uh, it was hard to tell because he was he was hard, hard to understand him generally. But I thought he said something along the lines of, and then he came back from from serving, and like so many other soldiers, had this brain cancer. Ah, well, I thought he I, said something I, along those lines. 
I, he was I, so generally is, meandering in his presentation yeah. in general. Yeah, yeah. I, it's 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 irrelevant. Um, it's it's somewhat. I understand why some would think it's tasteless to to use his son as a human shield for this. In part because what he's using him for is to justify what he says they understand to be an imminent threat to more American lives. That we they really fully understand that this could happen again right now as we're recording this. Another bomb could go off. There's no way to protect ourselves in the current posture that we're maintaining. And he insists that the Pentagon is really okay with the, po- the posture that we're maintaining. Go look at the images of where these bombs went off a day beforehand. They're like, I have it on my Twitter feed. Go to my Twitter feed and go scroll down and you'll see it. What they're, it's crowd control, what they're doing here. In the middle, basically the middle of a city, this Kabul, the Kabul airport is in the middle of the city. It's easy to occupy, they're easy to access. It's surrounded now by Taliban. And uh, the American forces there are really just up against a wall of a human wall trying to push back on these people. And and Joe Biden says that the Pentagon is kosher with this that they think this is a great posture to occupy and they can affect, they can affect this mission. BS. I don't believe that for a second. There are a lot of careerists I guess in the Pentagon who don't want to resign over this sort of thing, but they really should because I don't believe that for one second. American lives are in danger. He doesn't want to do one goddamn thing about it and he's using his son to justify that. Shameful. Okay, I, I just want to, one thing I want to say about the resignation point, because there's a lot of who's resigning, why aren't you resigning, people should be resigning. Um, I understand entirely why people who may end up resigning are not resigning right now. I you can't, do. I'm I just do. saying, like, it, it's important because there's a very performative resign. Everybody should resign. Mark Milley should resign, and Lloyd Austin should resign, and uh, and McKinney should resign, and all of that. Uh, they're in the middle of, of, of of hell and uh we can't they can't just walk away you know um they you know they 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 are part they are complicit in what happened here and they need to be there 24 7 to try to clean up the mess that they made and once that i mean i keep saying it's not really going to be over but once the immediate crisis at least moves slightly into the rearview mirror uh, then we can hold them uh, accountable for um for and say okay if you're staying there you're okay with it uh and you know let's see what happens when you go you know uh, give a speech somewhere and see you know who who stands up um you know like the you know, like the woman in Jaws who goes up and slaps uh, Roy Scheider in the face because he knew that there was a shark and he didn't do anything to stop the shark attack. I that that is. I'm sorry. That's a terrible analogy. I'm. It's a bit, we're doing this very early in the morning and analogizing this to Jaws is a it's a terrible idea. But I'm just sort of trying to think of what it's going to be like for people who think that they can just blithely continue to go through life having having done this you know the the boy the um you know the uh uh the best and the brightest who led us into vietnam spent their lives trying to cope with um the public response to them wherever and whenever they went and that's going to happen to these people well can i just one more point on that because i think it 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 touches on something that we were talking about with why it why it was so unnerving and annoying to listen to to Biden talk about his son's service. And that's because leadership should be about service. And if you look at some of the military leaders we've had in the past, their acts of service towards their troops, doing what the troops have to do, not just not just, you know, creating a strategy for the war, but actually being by their sides and prosecuting it. There's a sense in which in these moments of crisis that involve our members of our armed services, you want your civilian leadership in the form of the president 
to be a, a, an emblem of that service him or herself. Now, we haven't been electing people who've served. We haven't been doing that for a long time. And perhaps that's part of the problem. In my opinion, it is. But he's kind of trying to use his son's service as a cover for that, as a kind of, you know, it's like a costume he dons when it's appropriate to say, look, I understand military service. Look, my son served. Oh, also my son died. So there's some, you should have empathy for me. It doesn't, it, for most Americans, certainly for Americans who have family members who've served, it doesn't make sense. It's not, that's not the kind of leadership we need right now. It's not empathy. It's not, you know, look, I understand it because my son served. It's leadership. And he doesn't have that. And he's not actually listening to the to the military figures who've been telling him otherwise either. So he, he does seem adrift right now. Right, guys. Uh, n- not to downshift into something, uh, you know, a-, a little less pointed, but um, let me just tell you uh, about our first uh, sponsor today, Nutrafol. Because when it comes to thinning hair, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Did you know that there are five root causes of thinning hair? Nutrafol is the hair supplement that goes beyond genetics to target stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, and environmental factors that may be affecting your hair. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support uh, better sleep and less stress, too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. So you can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code COMMENTARY to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code COMMENTARY. Um, I put up a a very short post on the website uh, yesterday um, uh, called, um, you know, sort of, uh, I'm just going to read it. Uh, I w- ordinarily wouldn't do this, but I, cause I want to, I want to deal with the response to it on Twitter. Okay. Um, here's what I wrote as we mourn the losses of American service members today in Kabul, please keep this in mind. They would not be dead if Joe Biden had not chosen to pull American forces out of Afghanistan. The number of deaths today in Afghanistan is greater than the entire number of Americans who died there in 2020. They mark the first service deaths in Afghanistan since February 2020. The change here was the deliberate and conscious decision to, quote, end a war, unquote, in which Americans were not suffering combat casualties. The status quo held, and then Joe Biden, in between licks of his ice cream cones, heedlessly and vaingloriously smashed it to bits. He wants to be the bringer of peace. He is instead the bringer of chaos, and we haven't seen anything yet. That's the entirety of my post. Uh, Minutes after it went up, uh, Zach, it's either pronounced Beecham or Beauchamp, I don't know which, uh, the senior, a senior correspondent at Vox, most famous uh, for having uh, ha- having confidently explained that uh, there could really easily be, uh, you know, a, 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 a functioning Palestinian state on account of that bridge that goes from Gaza to the West Bank. Um, uh the non-existent. He was then like the chief Middle East correspondent of Vox. So, just to give you an idea of who this guy is, 
uh, he responded to my post by saying the following. This is just insanely dishonest. The reasons that there had been no U.S. service deaths since February 2020, that very specific date he chose, meaning me, is because the U.S. had a deal with the Taliban. Um, I bring this up only to say that then about an hour later, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, I think probably working off of uh, Zach's post here, uh, responded also to my post by saying the following, this idea that we, had we stayed in Afghanistan, the ceasefire with the Taliban would have magically continued and no Americans would have died is a total complete lie that reputable publications keep reprinting. Now, Thank you very much, Senator Murphy, for referring to commentary as a reputable publication. Uh, that said, um, what on earth are these people talking about? Abe, you went back. Uh, let me just do this. You went back and then you you counted, um, you, you tallied up for uh, in in response to this, um, the actual. Uh, numbers of Americans killed in Afghanistan, I think since 2015. I have them in front of me. Yeah, please. Uh, so, we, so it was 13 dead yesterday. Right. In one fell swoop. Right. And I, I fear, I, I fear, given the fact that they're at, you know, hospitals in Kabul, that more that, you know, that we may hear that that number may rise today or tomorrow. But go ahead. So, right. So there were there were nine dead in 2020, nine, nine dead uh, American uh, uh, combat deaths. Um, now, 2019 was larger. It was 22. 2018, I'm just going backwards in time. Mm-hmm. 2018, there were 15 American combat deaths in Afghanistan. 2017, there were 17. 2016, there were 14 2015, there were 22. And then we're going back into the... To, first decade of the century and they get they they, they go right but but in the from uh you know 2015 2016 to now the um, the number of deaths yesterday are all sort of in the neighborhood of the that, that number is kind of in the neighborhood of yearly totals for the past five years yeah, and uh, what what didn't we have in those years? A ceasefire with the Taliban, which, by the way, we didn't have as a result of the deal that Pompeo and Trump struck with the Taliban. It was not a ceasefire. That is a that is the, you know no one ever described it as a ceasefire. It hasn't been called a ceasefire. I, I bring this up again not to because I want to like you know litigate people criticizing me. Um, it goes to this very peculiar, peculiar framing of this, which is, and 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 Biden did it yesterday. If he hadn't followed the Trump pullout deal that Pompeo struck, uh, he would have had to send in thousands or tens of thousands of more Americans uh, in its wake. Really, who said? Well, the Pentagon reportedly uh, said that if we did not decline to to renegotiate this withdrawal deal. And we should say that the Trump era deal was a, was a terrible deal. I remember writing about this at the time. It shouldn't have happened. Um, but if, and it was scheduled initially for May 1st, 2021. And if they didn't renegotiate that deal, the, uh, you know, the Taliban would have executed uh, a, an offensive in the spring, like it does every spring. And it would have been something that we would have had to introduce, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, six thousand more troops 
to augment American forces and to protect, you know, the, the ANA, the, the Afghan National Army. Um, <clears throat> but again, based on the nightmare that we're dealing with now, that seems a preferable alternative. This, and I'm going to go off briefly on this talking point, which is this just flotsam in a shipwreck that they're grasping onto, this notion that Donald Trump has saved everybody from, from chaos here. He's this grand peacemaker. The last casualty, first last battle, battlefield casualties among Americans in Afghanistan was February 8th, 2020. The deal wasn't struck until February 29th, 2020. The next airstrikes that the United States executed on Taliban positions was March 4th, 2020, when the Taliban began assaulting uh, border posts. The deal survived to the extent that it survived at all for a grand total of four days. The Afghan National Army was executing forward operations with close U.S. air support all through that year, Biden maintained the tempo of those airstrikes all the way up until May of this year when he pulled air and logistical support from the Afghan National Army. The Afghan National Army subsequently melted away. Joe Biden reluctantly agreed to resume airstrikes with a total of a grand total of two warplanes uh, on in the outskirts of Kandahar, which actually had a significant delaying effect on the Taliban's advance in Kandahar. But by then it was too late to stop what was already happening. Um, and the notion here that this is, you know, just an Afghan condition. We also haven't had any combat deaths in Iraq since March of 2020, with the notable absence of any Trump-era peace deals with militant groups. Um, why? Because they, we are operating with this, their very same posture in Iraq. We are operating from behind bases and high walls, using drones and air cover to support local forces that main that allow us to maintain a very tiny footprint in these places and execute our objectives with reasonable competence and a very small commitment of U.S. forces. That's the best case scenario. And we're sacrificing it in favor of something so much worse. So this noxious talking point that they're just clinging to is 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 all it is. All it is is just cover. It's just butt covering. It's well, not, they, it's they, not they, you know, convincing. It's worse than noxious. It's cowardly because what they did after, uh, by many reports, uh, pulling that air support from the Air Force, Afghan Air Force, was the thing that that was the final, you know, if you play Jenga, it's the one that you you, you pull out that block, the whole thing collapses. Air but and then, logistical. And yeah, logistical. And they turned, these planes. But then they turned around and blamed what happened because of that decision on the Afghans' own cowardice, when in fact it was our own. And I, I want to highly recommend to our listeners a, a great piece in Foreign Affairs by Corey Shake of the American Enterprise Institute, Shockey, yeah, yeah. who methodically lays out all these justifications and arguments that, that are now the, the basis for both the PR strategy, messaging strategy, and quite frankly, the, the moral case that the Biden administration is making for what's happened in Afghanistan and demolishes it just point by point, very, very clearly. And that is, that's one of the things that, that she says, she's that this claim that the mission in Afghanistan was unsustainable. She, she points out, you know, if you really believe that, then why was it that the Taliban itself, when it captured Kabul was like, wow, we never expected we'd do this so quickly. Look at us. I mean, they were alarmed. They were sort of astonished at how easily it came to them. And that goes back to the decisions that the Biden administration made most notably just ditching this Trump era deal, which was a terrible deal. He could have done that and he chose not to. I mean, how many deals, how many Trump deals did he ditch? Uh, he ditched the uh, policy, the remain in the remain in Mexico policy, uh, for example, on, you know, uh, when it comes to applying for uh, asylum to the United States um, uh, and uh, apparently did so illegally, by the way, since a judge has has ruled that uh, there was there was no statute, there was no sort of um, process by which that decision was was pulled. So the niceties here are not of uh, 
not of all that much interest. And, and of course, the, yeah. Well, it, you know, he's on Biden's on record as having wanted to get quickly out of Afghanistan before Trump was president. I mean, you know, so there's no question. Yeah. This isn't like something he fell into uh, and is obligated to uphold. This 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 comes yeah. straight from him. Well, and there was this very peculiar the Afghan conflict had run its course. Yeah. When yeah. he opposed I mean, Barack Obama's right. surge in 2009. I mean, two things about uh, his answers to questions during the press conference. The first is that he went back into this uh, analogy or that he drew uh, in the, the first big speech on this, which is had, uh, had uh, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda been in Yemen and not in Afghanistan, would we be in Afghanistan? Of course not. So now... Osama bin Laden is not in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda is not in Afghanistan. So why why are we there at all? Well, first of all, I believe uh, we now think that Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan. Um, uh, so let, let, let's let just put that to one side since Osama bin Laden is, uh, you know, is, is blessedly dead. Um, uh, this, this analogy makes absolutely no sense because the reason that we were in Afghanistan was to prevent terrorist attacks on the United States. We didn't go there to get bin Laden. That is a mistake. We went to make two points, one of which is you attack us, we will hunt you down and we will kill you, right? And so we went into Afghanistan and we, uh, you know, and then we then we made a terrible t- tactical error. Like we didn't go into the caves in Tora Bora and hunt them down and kill them. Like, and so uh, bin Laden survived for another um, eight and a half years uh, until, until SEAL Team 6 took him out. Um, but... We were also trying to explain to the world that there would be no safe harbor for terrorist groups if you were a country that housed them, did not extra either uh, allowed them to be there with your say so, or you didn't do something to extirpate them. We would we would morally see no difference between you, the go- governing body that allowed this to happen, and the terrorists themselves. And we would this was a new doctrine. This was an American new American doctrine. We would not allow a regime to survive that allowed terrorist groups attacking the United States to live uh, in its in its in its uh, you know in its precincts. It was more than that, though, and there's quite a bit of revisionist history going on. Like, if only we had just neutralized Osama bin Laden in October of 2001, none of this would have happened. Nonsense. Go back and reread or rewatch George W. Bush's address to a joint session of Congress in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, it, there was very few distinctions made between the worldview of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. They were one and the same. And it was a civilizational conflict that their conception of social organization was antithetical to our own. They were in conflict and one or the other would survive it. And that's, that's what the United States committed to. And that's what everybody was on board with, just about everybody. There were very few ob- objectors to that sort of project. And that is what right. we, we embarked upon after a month, after a very prolonged right. period in which the country was saying, why aren't we doing anything in Afghanistan? It, didn't, it took weeks before right. we engaged in Afghanistan and it was to, to the profound frustration right. of the country at the time. Now, the point is policy can change over time. You could even say, well, this, that, and the other thing, the world is different. It's 20 years later. Things have shifted. Um, right now, uh, the, the claim that is being made about the attacks on Americans yesterday is that it came from a terrorist group hostile to the Taliban, right? That, that, that you know, we now have a common enemy, ISIS-K. Like, they don't, the, the Taliban doesn't like them and we don't like them. And now, 
but um, the policy still holds, which is if this is a country that the Taliban are going to run, they can't allow ISIS-K to be wandering around killing people. Now, granted, they've, they've only just taken over the country, but um, our, the policy still stands. That's why the analogy that Biden drew is so deranged, which is we do have an interest in in Afghanistan and keeping the Taliban out of power. Guess how we know that? Because of what just happened there. But that's the because conceit. Of what is happening there now. But that's their conceit. The conceit is that what, what I think Noah accurately reminds us of, this, this civilizational challenge, which of course led to backlash, people claiming, you know, Islamophobia. That there was a whole lot of interesting cultural things that came out of that claim. But the claim itself was was objectively true. Look at how this, whether it's the Taliban you're talking about or ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they all do have, they want a theocratic fascist state. Women are subjugated. People are punished by death for very minor things. Uh, It's very clear that they do share a worldview. They might not share specific policy recommendations with each other. And that's where this conceit that, well, we used to be in civilizational discord with the Taliban, but now we understand their interests is so ridiculous and so damaging and and really kind of awful. That's the problem with, with Biden's claim about this, how if 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 uh, bin Laden had attacked us from Yemen, we'd go into Yemen. There's a reason Al-Qaeda planned it from Afghanistan. It's, Afghanistan is hospitable to Al-Qaeda for, for, for a particular reason. Bin, bin Laden is not from Afghanistan. He, 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 he went there because they share a worldview and we're, and and the the people that run the country still share that worldview and we're leaving so this is a terrible argument it's not it's not like uh it was just happenstance that that that's where that that's where uh terrorist plan attacks from there's a I mean, problem the most- with the Taliban and terrorism and the safety of the United States the Abe, that is the most charitable uh, interpretation of that weird refrain that he's used a couple of times now, which I can't see as anything other than a non sequitur. He's like, well, if, 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 you know, Osama bin Laden had attacked us from Yemen, we would have never gone to Afghanistan. Well, yeah. What does that have to do with anything? What point is the, is he making there besides you know, the one that you have uh, d- divined somehow, uh, which was, you know, very, very clever on your part, but otherwise I can't see what he's trying to say there at all. Okay, well, let's go. We can even play the string out a little more. So he's not in Afghanistan. He's in Yemen. So we go into Yemen. We remove the government of Yemen. And we're probably still there in 2021. So, yeah, you can shift the terms from Afghanistan to Yemen. But if Yemen were Afghanistan, we would still be in Yemen. Because that's what happens when you are a country that goes into places and you don't want to be an imperial occupying power and run things. You then start in with this now highly controversial and everybody from the right to the left doesn't like the term nation building. But um, let's just be clear on why nation building was the policy in the first place. It's because we're not an imperialist power. We nation build in order to create the conditions under which we can eventually either leave or in which we make the place that we had to go into better than it was before. And I'm going to say this again because nobody is saying it. We made Afghanistan a better place than it was before. It was a, it was a nightmarish, uh, dystopian 
mirror image world of the modern, you know, of, of everything that we hold dear. And we took out the regime that ran it. And if you will see, you know, and the, yes, the Afghan people had to suffer through, um, you know, a lot of uh, barbarism in their own way and, 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 and the destruction of civil war and terrorist bombings and a lot of corruption. And if you're going to tell me that the last 20 years of life in Afghanistan were worse than the, uh, what it is, seven or eight years that the, or five or six years that the Taliban were in power, I don't believe you believe that. And if you do believe that, go read a book because you are living in some utter fantasy land. And if we had a commitment in Afghanistan, if we'd had a commitment this year and last year in Afghanistan that costs us a trillion dollars a year, and we were just there spending, throwing money everywhere simply as a means of keeping ourselves there um, and preventing the Taliban from coming in, it was really draining American coffers and it was really costing American lives and all of that, then we could have this argument. But we had a light, cheap footprint that we removed and you know and and uh and and as i say the da- the dam has burst and and the and the flood is a light, upon, upon a light us. cheap footprint in a country with a legitimate popularly elected government that invited us to maintain that that footprint that is the that is right. our posture around the world we are we operate at the invitation of host governments which is the opposite of what the the word that these people like to use occupation Right. They clearly have no idea what the, what, the, what any of that means. They're just you know channeling neo-colonial nonsense that they learned in a gender studies program. But that is that is the the truth of the matter is that we are we occupy nowhere. We operate at the at the the behest of these host governments that invite us to do so because it's in mu- our mutual self interest. That you know the phrase that the Pentagon likes to use a lot to justify our right. our actions with the Taliban. Right, guys. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Maiden's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. Um, if and you should check out Maiden. This cookware and, and kitchenware brand works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, knives, and wine glasses. They source the finest materials to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made-in products are made to last. They offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven, and their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced, and stay sharp. They have 32,000 five-star reviews, products used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world, made in better cookware for better meals. Right now, Made In is offering our listeners 15% off your first order with promo code COMMENTARY. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made In products. Go to madeincookware.com slash commentary and use promo code COMMENTARY for 15% off your first order. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com slash commentary. Use promo code COMMENTARY. Uh, I just want to uh, uh, shift topics again, as I did yesterday, and talk a little bit about COVID. Um, because uh, we now have a, a certain stats uh, are in uh, based on the reopening of schools uh, and the uh, L.A. County Unified School District, which has uh, apparently there were like uh, 300 and uh, 450,000 kids in school in the, uh, you know, when school started last week or whatever. And uh, there was testing uh, done of the kids and of the staff 
I don't really know how many staff there are, but let's say there are 25,000 staffers. So that, that's probably a little low. Uh, but testing was done of students and staff, and it came back. And Barbara Ferrer, one of our least favorite public health officials, the health, uh, uh, the health, the public health person in LA County, announced the sobering fact uh, that they came back with 3,100 positive cases of COVID. Uh, let's do the math, everybody. What is the percentage? What percentage of 450,000 is 3,100? Anybody know? It's 0.67%. 0.67% tested positive for COVID in the entire school district. Uh, about and, and we don't even know quite what the breakdown is between students and staff. That is a good number, not a sobering number. That is a happy number, not a bad number. When we were talking about COVID in terms of locking things down and making people stay home and all of that, back last year when there were no vaccines and nothing, we were talking 3 to 5% positive testing. That's that what that was the threshold. Like New York State's I think was 3% for restaurants to shut down and all of that. E- because of the vaccine, because of whatever, it's 0.67%. Um, the other uh, fact is that they uh, have now done some sort of survey testing of the aftermath of the Sturgis motorcycle rally uh, in, in South Dakota uh, last month, uh, where uh, 500,000 people descended on Sturgis. If you remember, oh, it's all the ultimate super spreader event, blah, 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 blah. Uh, best data suggests that a hundred there were 121 cases of COVID as a result of the Sturgis rally. 121 out of 500,000. We're now going into 0.003% or something like that. Um, yes, the Delta variant is uh, threatening and dangerous and is, 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 is doing a, a terrible thing, but it is not doing a terrible thing to the vaccinated, and it is not doing a terrible thing to children, and we are now getting actual hard, you know, longitudinal hard data to prove that this is the case, and uh, and yet uh, we are still seeing these stories, like Emma Goldberg's story in the New York Times today, about how you know breakthrough cases are rare, but when you get them, they're really they can be really bad. This story, which is about 2,000 words long, features five anecdotes, five different people in five places in America that got breakthrough infections and it was really bad for them. Five people. Uh, And the story contains no large-scale data. We are being fed a a diet of COVID panic and COVID hysteria as we are trying to get past this and the only irony here is that Biden, it was Joe Biden who said, I'm not going to shut the country down. I'm going to shut the disease down. Well, great work, everybody. You know, you've been in president since January 20th. And, you know, you can blame Trump voters and Republicans all you like for being vaccine resistant. And God knows I have. And we've talked about it here Um but, you know, the rubber meets the road. And uh, if you need to get people vaccinated, having these, having Rochelle Walensky and Anthony Fauci and all of these people wandering around who have lost the confidence of people who are vaccine hesitant being your message deliverers and your water carriers, 
that's bad policy and you are going to suffer for it and people are going to start blaming you for the policies that are being enacted that are making Americans less free for no reason. Well, and and honestly, the the other thing that's that's uh, being uh, becoming very clear as school as kids get back to school is how emboldened the one of the most the, you know the teachers unions are, uh, who of course exert a huge amount of pressure and influence exercise influence over the Biden administration, both because of their donations and and how they've lobbied successfully lobbied the CDC to change guidance. Uh, we've seen um, it's interesting that all uh, two both major teachers unions presidents have done lengthy sit down interviews in the last week or so. Uh, one with The New York Times. That was Randy Weingarten and uh, Becky Pringle with The Atlantic. And both refused to say that teachers should be is, there should be a mandate for vaccination. They strongly encourage vaccination, but they want to give teachers who are putting kids who can't be vaccinated at risk the freedom to choose not to be vaccinated while but also requiring all kids over the age of two to be masked the entire time they're in school to protect the teachers who refuse vaccination. So again, if they're emboldened to say that, they're reading the mood quite clearly, which is we can do whatever we want and we can still exercise control over schools and whether they open or close and what kids have to wear all day without any acknowledgement of the fact that the science, as you say, John, the science doesn't doesn't support these draconian measures. It certainly is very mixed messaging about masks because masking on with very young children, they haven't been doing it in Europe. Parents who bring that up are called, you know, say they want to kill children and whatnot. But the masks right now for kids, certainly for kids in high school and middle school, are there only to protect the unvaccinated teachers because the vaccinated kids are not the risk. It's the unvaccinated teachers and staff. Um, you know, one of the places that I turned uh, all through last year for uh, uh, salient uh, wisdom guidance and uh, charts uh, on these matters was my friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group. Um, and uh, he, he had a newsletter called COVID and Markets. He no longer has that. But if you subscribe to his daily newsletter, the dctoday.com, and his weekly newsletter, dividendcafe.com, you will find David's writing on COVID as COVID has, as the Delta variant has taken center stage. He is, he is collating data. He is making charts that are incredibly useful, incredibly helpful. Uh, in in providing a uh, you know a counter view, he is not an anti vaxxer He is vaccinated. His family is vaccinated. He believes in the vaccinations, but he but he believes that um, but he believes based on hard research that uh, there's a lot of nonsense going on. And if you want to see some of that, as well as some of the best analysis you will ever get on daily trends in the market and the Fed and the interplay of government and economic and, and, and markets and on economic policy. You will go to dividendcafe.com today and subscribe to David's two newsletters, Dividend Cafe, the weekly one, and the DC Today, which is the daily one from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. So uh, we got to go. Oh, Christine? I was just going to mention that there was one little light at the end of the tunnel of, of, of daily news, uh, and that's that the Supreme Court struck down the massive bureaucratic overreach of the CDC's attempt, the Biden administration's CDC, to extend the rent moratorium. So that was actually a little glimmer of good news, although right. it's kind of shocking that the three liberal justices thought that was a perfectly reasonable use of federal power. Um. So, you know, statutorily, basically what they said was, if you want the eviction moratorium to continue, Congress has to pass a law making the eviction moratorium continue, which we knew in August when, or excuse me, not in August, in July or whatever, June, when somehow the House neglected to 
to take up the eviction moratorium or couldn't do it and then demanded, insisted that the Biden administration do so as Cory Bush slept on the steps of the Capitol in some I mean, what a noble gesture to sleep outside in a lawn chair with people taking your picture, you know, in warm weather. Um, uh, Biden had said that this thing was unconstitutional and he couldn't do it. And then he did it anyway to suck up to them or whatever, um, because it it was patently unconstitutional. And three liberal justices said it was okay. And Stephen Breyer's dissent features a perspective chart on the Delta variant and what it could mean going forward in terms of really spreading a lot, which doesn't really (laughs) answer the question, why can't people who have the Delta variant pay their rent in a country that has massive labor shortages and in which money is still flowing to them Unemployment money is still flowing to them in many of the – will continue to flow to them in many of the blue states after the federal government's $300 a week subvention is over uh, at the end of September. Um, You know, I I don't know why liberals want Stephen Breyer to retire. He'll obviously say whatever the hell they want him to say and say – you know, and I mean this is the most nakedly, nakedly, you know, patently – the law should be whatever is nice, according to my dictates. Uh, yeah, it's really nice for the you know uh, forty million landlords in the United States, most of whom are people who have one piece of property, like their basement that they're trying to rent out, and who have lost their property rights and are you know and are being you know driven into economic hardship by this insane policy. If I was a Democrat, then this is probably why I'm not, but I would be furious at the justices for putting in such a lazy effort to counter a a statutorily airtight case against the eviction moratorium, one the president himself gave voice to, which, as we remember from the Trump era, actually does matter when your intent is is so well-defined publicly that uh, it, it really does demonstrate what your intent was and that can be considered by the justices but he put in such a you know that that chart you know so suggesting covid cases literally the argument against the striking down the eviction moratorium is don't you know there's a pandemic which yes we do and that, that has no bearing on the subject matter you would expect them to at least make a facially compelling argument in favor of it in 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 terms that well, you the know, constitution but this maybe is also they another you know briefly this is the story of this administration so far is that they, when Joe Biden has has lost an issue and he's had a terrible week, it's because he's led by the nose, either by his left or by his own, you know, his own left wing instincts. He won this this the presidency and the primary by not doing that. And when he's abandoned that, he's walked himself into a cul-de-sac. Uh, or a buzzsaw. Right. Anyway, um, so uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, everybody have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>